Hello there, welcome to Fear of a Black Planet. I can't even remember what fucking episode we're on. 155? Yes, 155. <clears throat> I know I haven't been very consistent recently. Um, yeah. I'm sorry about that to anyone who cares. Um, this lockdown is really starting to take its toll in more ways than one. Obviously, everyone wants lives to be preserved, but you should also be able to criticise the lockdown without without having aspersions cast on your intentions. To me, the, the massive invasion of freedom and everyday liberty is completely disproportionate. There's no evidence it's actually saving lives. And the, I think that really the, the main thing is from right from the beginning of this whole thing has been the confusion around the messaging around this. On the one hand, it's, oh my God, you ought to be terrified of the amount of deaths, the death toll. On the other hand, they're saying, look, this is a virus, it's going to kill certain people who are already vulnerable. We're not, we're not really going to be able to save lives, but we can flatten the curve. And the two get conflated, and that conflation itself becomes weaponized, so that we're in this kind of state of cognitive dissonance and, and confusion. And as I've written before and ranted about before, that's dangerous in itself. So, I'm finding this a bit of a strain, I'm not going to lie to you, and it isn't just the sort of narcissistic thing of being trapped in my room and not being able to do what I want to, man, it's that it's very isolating to, for you to feel that you're seeing things entirely clearly, it's like a kind of mass gaslighting thing. And I've had, been having arguments with friends and, 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 and feeling very isolated about this because I don't think we're responding proportionally. I think it's a real threat to certain groups of people. But they are a very isolated group of people about which we can do much more if we throw our resources at that rather than just completely shutting down the economy. And, and one of the, the, the things, I think the thing that's really straining on me, and I can't believe I'm the only one on this, is that it doesn't give you a vision of the future. This uncertainty is, is it feels like the uncertainty about the future is a weapon against us, that, that, the, that the governments are going out of their way to not offer certainty, to not offer hope, to not offer some exit strategy here. And so that um, is an attack on the human being. Because the human being, as we all know, needs to have a meaningful map of the world. And the very meaningful map of the world that we would want to create for ourselves is under attack, under these kind of excruciatingly tight regulations about what we can and cannot do with our, with, in public life. 
I'm going to read a piece by Lord Sumption because he's come out again. Possibly people have seen it. <clears throat> Sorry, I haven't got it. I'm not very organised. So this is at the weekend. He he uh, wrote this piece for the Mail on Sunday. Now he's a liberal. He did the Reith lectures last year, so he is very much one of the establishment elite. And he's a very educated man, and he's a very acute mind. So he's not, my point is, is he's not some rambling David Icke, right? <clears throat> so I'll just read it, I'll read the headline first. Locking up the elderly until coronavirus is defeated is a cruel mockery of basic human values. Former Supreme Court Judge Lord Sumption gives a withering critique of the government's lockdown. Okay, I'll just read it, and then I might go off on one. COVID-19 is not the greatest crisis in our history. It is not even the greatest public health crisis in our history. But the lockdown is without doubt the greatest interference with personal liberty in our history. It is, not, it is normal at this point to add in peacetime, but we, can, but we can forget that. Even in wartime, we never confined the entire population to their homes 24-7 if they did not have some excuse, excuse acceptable to a minister. States have always tried to confine people known to be carrying da dangerous infections, but we live in a new world in which, if we are ill, the state will try to cure us. From this, it is said to follow that the state can take control of our lives against our will, even if we are healthy, lest we, fall, lest we fall ill and need its services too much. Suddenly, it is our duty to save the NHS, not the other way round. It is now pointless to object to the imposition of the lockdown in the first place. It has happened. The question is how we get out of it. It is a pity that the government did not ask itself that question when, in the blind panic following the delivery of Imperial College London's Professor Neil Ferguson's statistical projections, it legislated the lockdown on the hoof in a late-night press conference. Right, that to me is always the... that's what I go back to. And this is where I've been trying to say to friends who are not open to this, that the way this lockdown was done is a big part of what my problem is with it. It's just after four o'clock on the Monday, on the day that Parliament for the first time is going to debate this lockdown in Britain. And it's going to be two hours and they're going to try and cram so much in, but there has been no rigorous oversight on this. And that's what terrifies me. And that's what's allowed the miscarriages of justice, which I, as I perceive them, the invasions of liberty there and the interpretations of the law that are completely unnecessary. Anyway, I'll continue. They now find themselves trapped by their own decisions. Ministers have formulated five tests to be satisfied before the lockdown is lifted. What is wrong with these tests is that they are all about health and, about, and only about health. The government has formulated them in their own interest. They think that it is the will that they think that this will allow them to avoid criticism by sheltering behind the scientists. But that is just an evasion of political responsibility. Of course, it is understandable that politicians should want to shelter themselves from criticism, but there is no reason why the rest of us should help them do it. Ending the lockdown is a political decision, not a scientific one. It boils down to a single question. Is it worth it? That depends only partly on the science. There are also moral judgments, constitutional values and economic consequences involved. But since the government likes its tests to come in fives, here is a five-part test in which, which tries to address the real issues. So first of all, by the way, I, his first one here is going to deal with science. Another point that people reject 
when you criticise the lockdown is that the science is somehow debatable. The, the science is hugely disputed. It's becoming almost absurd to deny that now. Every day there's an eminent scientist who comes up and says, well, hang on a minute, I just don't believe that these numbers are correct. There have been misuses of the model. There's been a misunderstanding of statistics. There's been a... Uh, an overblown panic according you know there's a real health crisis here in terms of supplying health to people who are extremely vulnerable already and no one's saying we shouldn't have helped those people my god it's horrible reading about these things in hospitals but the answer is not to 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 crush society to crush people's spirits in what is ultimately going to be a futile fight against death death is going to happen here it's a fucking awful disease but the science is disputed. The extent of it, the way it's being reported, is completely overblown and actually is causing us to not be able to supply the right targeted help to the people who most need it, which are people who are already extremely ill and vulnerable. Okay, I'm going to just continue reading. First, the medical issue. I'm not going to argue about Professor Ferguson's projections. They've caused some discomfort among reputable professionals. That's an understatement. They are based on some rather arbitrary assumptions. And they leave out of the account important considerations such as the adverse health consequences of the lockdown itself or the number of people who would have died anyway from underlying clinical conditions, even without COVID-19, maybe a few months later. But let us take it as a given, since it is probably true that the lockdown will save a significant number of lives, albeit fewer than Professor Ferguson projects. I actually disagree with that. I don't think there's, that's, it's only probable at best, but there's no evidence to it. There's no evidence to it. Because places that have gone not gone in lockdown have also suffered, and a lot of places who have gone into extreme lockdown have had no cases. So it's impossible to measure that. Second, we need to ask how many deaths we are prepared to accept in order to pr preserve other things that we value. However valuable saving lives, quotes, may be, it is not the only valuable thing. Some comparison is therefore unavoidable between the lives we gain and the other things we lose by a lockdown. To say that life is priceless and nothing else counts is just empty rhetoric. People say it because it's emotionally comfortable and avoids awkward dilemmas, but they don't actually believe it. True. We went to war in 1913 because lives were worth losing for liberty. We allow cars on the roads because lives are worth losing for convenience. We travel by air through although pollution kills. We tut-tut about it, but we willingly do it. Third question, what sort of life do we think we are protecting? There is more to life than the avoidance of death. Life is, the, life is a drink with friends. Life is a crowded football match or a live concert. Life is a family celebration with children and grandchildren. Life is companionship, an arm around one's back, laughter or tears shared at less than two metres. These things are not just optional extras. They are life itself. They are fundamental to our humanity, to our existence as social beings. Of course, death is permanent, whereas joy may be temporarily suspended. But the force of that point depends on how temporarily it really is. Yeah, and how temporary it really is. And yes, this is exactly the point that I, I think what I'm suffering right now is that, hang on a minute, the suspension of effectively all the meaningful aspects of life is now becoming... It, it, it's there's no end in sight so it feels almost like those very things that he's talking about those very textures of life are under attack because there's no promise that we're going to lift it. and we keep hearing about these people saying this is the new normal this is the new normal well you can fucking take your new normal and shove it up your japs eye 
Viruses don't just go away. This one will never disappear unless and until there is enough exposure to it to produce collective immunity or effective vaccine or an effective vaccine appears. Talk of compulsorily 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 shielding in place in plain English lock up locking up the old and vulnerable until one of those things happens is a cruel mockery of basic human values. Fourth, there is a money question. People decry attempts to measure mortality of COVID-19 against the economic costs of reducing it, but this too is rhetoric and hypocritical rhetoric at that. Money is not just for plutocrats. You and I and the editor of The Guardian and the driver of the number nine bus and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the cashier at the supermarket all value and depend on money. Not just the sense that it pays our wages or pensions. Hundreds of thousands of businesses are going under. Millions are moving from jobs to universal credit. A thriving economy of the kind we are now throwing away is the source of our security and the foundation of our children's future. This is, this is what's terrifying me, is that on something where the science is disputed and it's impossible to tell the truth, we're acting with such grave certainty about really dangerous things. And, and, and there's a sense of glibness among people. I'm talking there, I'm not reading. There's a sense of glibness among people about this, as if it's just simply a matter, oh, shut up, we need to protect people. Well, no, hang on a minute. You're talking about extreme action here that's not guaranteed to work on, on a challenge that hasn't been properly delineated and, and not represented well in the press. So it's... It's a lot to, to sacrifice for something we don't... For, for something that doesn't have enough consistent evidence that it's going to work. You know, this is, it's a lot to give up, and I think people don't realise what's at stake here. And that's what I feel like the the, the, the hardline lockdown zealots, as Toby Young calls them, don't quite realise what's at stake here. And, 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 and when I get angry, there's a sense of that there's a glibness about what liberty really means, and a glibness about... how valuable a thriving economy is to that liberty. And that's not some neoliberal point. I'm pro-NHS, I've got some very socialistic leanings on certain specific issues like housing, for instance, or health, or education. Those, those are things which I, I, I support quite um, far-reaching government solutions in. But I, I, under also, I, I, I guess I'm sort of moderate social democrat, and I understand that, that a tax base is necessary for that, and a fucking thriving economy is necessary. But it's not only that; it's necessary for freedom, to have the kind of pluralism that leads to freedom. And this is what these people. What the, there's a certain kind of. Um, it's the same thing as the as the political correctness thing. They want unanimity. They want absolute agreement, no dissent. But what they don't realise is that the freedoms that they enjoy depend upon plurality and messiness and dissent and the marketplace of ideas and commodities. It, it's all wrapped into itself. And that doesn't make me some creepy old neoliberal. That's just a fact. It's observable because unanimity does not mean unity. It just means conformity, ultimately. And that doesn't, obviously, that's the anathema to freedom. But anyway, I'm back to back to assumption. Assumption's gumption, as Peter Hitchens said. 
We would do well not to sneer at it. Poverty kills too, and when it does not kill, it maims mentally, physically and socially. Last but not least, we have to ask ourselves what are the limits to the things that the state can legitimately do to people against their will in a liberal democracy? To say that there are no limits is the stuff of tyrants. Every despot who ever lived thought that he was coercing his subjects for their own good or that of society at large. One of the more impressive observations of the Swedish epidemiologist Professor Giesek, Johan Giesek, is the interview in which in, in the interview in which he justified Sweden's refusal to lock its people down was not about epidemiology at all. His point was that there are some things that may work in a, in, and that a totalitarian state like China can do, but a country like Sweden with its long liberal tradition cannot do, cannot do them unless it wants to become like China. We too have to ask ourselves what kind of relationship we want with the state. Do we really want to be the kind of society where basic freedoms are conditional on decisions of politicians enthralled to scientists and statisticians, where human beings are just tools of public policy? A society in which the government can confine most of the population without controversy is not one in which civilised people would want to live, regardless of their answers to the que these questions. Is it worth it? Right, so this is the crucial point here, is that what's at stake here, people don't realise why this is important. They think, shut up, there's a health crisis, it's the wrong question to ask. That's what a lot of people will say, right? But no, it's it's not. The, 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 if you believe in liberty, if you believe in individual rights, they're not suspended at the first challenge. You say, well, what about war? Yes, but in in... In war, there is a direct mass existential threat, whereas we're not dealing with that for one. But also, in almost all of these cases, the, the, the examples like the defense of the realm were in themselves problematic. We have, we, it, took, it took decades for a lot of the stupid laws that were brought in around the wars in the 20th century in Britain to be rescinded. And that's, that speaks to the point. These are examples which are themselves problematic. So it, 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 the question is always like, if you believe in freedom, how contingent are these liberties? And what does, that, what does that really mean about your view of citizenship and your own relationship to the state? I, for one, don't think these things are contingent in a free society, because, or, or they're not contingent in a good society. Let me put it like that, because a good society depends on the flourishing of human nature, and the flourishing of human nature depends on liberty, on agency, on protecting the agency of the citizen. That's what makes a society worthwhile. That's what is the greatest argument for the existence of the social contract. And again, I've taught many times before, I go back to Aristotle, This is, this is the Aristotelian tradition, or the Aristotelian beginnings of the liberal tradition. That it, that it comes down to a question of human nature. What do you think a state is for? Why do we need a state? Aristotle says it's because it's under, a, under a free state is the only conditions under which human beings can reach their fullest potential and, living and, fulfill, and, and reach fulfillment. And fulfillment is flourishing, virtue living up to your true potential. And, 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 if, and, and, and if, we, if we immediately let go of that foundational set of values in a society simply because of any given threat, then what does that mean in the long term? That's what Sumption's asking here. You might have some good points in the short term, but you have to recognize that you are basically saying that 
this critical justification for the state suddenly changes under certain circumstances. And that's not what I accept. I don't accept that. Maybe some people do, but I do not accept that because I don't accept the certain critical factors about human nature change, actually. I'm willing to say that. I know that's a really unpopular thing in this postmodern existence. But I think there are certain fundamental truths about human nature. And no, they're not the products of the white Western man. They're the products of liberal humanist traditions from across the globe, whether you call it the tradition of uh, Krishna or Christianity or, or the Islamic scholars of the medieval world. It, there are certain fundamental facts about human nature and those facts are, are down to agency and choice and flourishing and the conditions under which human beings can live a good life as opposed to a bad life. There are certain fundamental truths that we can assert about that. And the main one for me is agency. And if we, if we, if we take away people's freedom in a society, in, in, in that tradition, and it's not just me blabbing here, this is a whole thousands of years of tradition that have sustained constitutional continuity here, if you decide to change that agreement between citizen and state, then you have to admit that, 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 that you, you no longer have a justification based on consent. You no longer have a justification based on the good of the people. I, and I, I just like to say again, I would be far happier if we had had, if, if, if you know they were saying, well, there's all these health threats and we have to change things. Right, fair enough. But if there was, if there had been more scrutiny and more transparency on this, I would be more open to that. But because Parliament for basically for four weeks was shut down, or at least three weeks, on the day after they brought in the most far-reaching restrictions on human liberty ever in this country, and then Parliament went into a break, that to me cancels out that. If you really believed that. If it was really just a pragmatic thing about preserving health, you would have maintained uh, scrutiny. But this was a power grab, a convenient power grab, which used a real threat to justify it. Okay, I'll just continue with assumption. My own answer is no. Guidance is fine. Voluntary self-isolation is fine and strongly advisable for more vulnerable. For the more vulnerable, most of them will do it by choice. But coercion is not fine. There is no moral or principle justification for it. Not everyone will agree, which is fair enough. These are difficult value judgments on which one would not expect general agreement. The fundamental point is that these questions need to be confronted and publicly discussed by politicians without the kind of emotive evasions, propaganda slogans, and generalized hype that have characterised their contribution so far. Exactly. That's the critical point here. A lot of the points from the other side would be far more acceptable if there hadn't been this general evasiveness, as he puts it, and this, this unwillingness to have these really incredibly far-reaching pieces of legislation scrutinised. So, the... That's my position on on these things so far. I've been trying to concentrate on other things, trying to concentrate on poetry. I did a, a sort a sort of gig at the weekend actually on Friday night. There's um a, a local sing along in my area. 
and I went and did a couple of songs, but obviously <laughs> I wasn't sure about whether to do it, because I don't really have sing-along songs. I should have more, but I don't. I'll just sing kind of nasty old ballads. But, um, yeah, it's okay, actually. There was something fulfilling about it. I did feel like, you know, I was doing a kind of my local bit for the community, you know, in whatever way I can. I can't really fix things. I'm not, I'm not a handyman, but I can sing a song and entertain people, so that felt good. Um... And it felt good to be playing along with other musicians as well. Uh, albeit just strumming chords. <laughs> but there's something nice about that. And I don't get I don't get to do it enough. Um I wasn't originally going to do it because I, I I I'm not really I here's the thing. People keep asking me to go on Skype calls and things like this, and I, I at this moment in time I don't feel like just trying to grab for normality. Because there's not enough normality to make that reasonable to me. I don't feel like just having a cheery old joke-along time about it. I just don't feel like that right now. And that's why I think I've got into some arguments with friends over this, because I don't feel like just having a blather and, you know, and let, taking my mind off things. I just can't take my mind off it. Every morning I wake up, I'm on fucking Twitter. I hate Twitter. But for some reason I have to be... and I, all, Right into the night before I fall asleep, it's the same. It's really hard for me to pull myself away from this. And it isn't just puerile addictions. It's, it, it, there's a sense that, of powerlessness that comes with this. That we're... I don't know. I, uh, it's incredibly dispiriting. Because it's an attack on, on the things that make life meaningful. So I, I, a good example of what I'm talking about and the thing that motivated me to go and take part in this community sing-along was... Let me just find it, actually. I don't know if anybody saw this, but there was... Um, yeah, so let me just read the headline here. This is again from the Mail Online. This was on... This last week sometime. Police closed down family string quartet playing classical music for their neighbours, claiming they're breaking coronavirus lockdown rules. So these were people in, in Bayswater in London, in this quite a plush, posh part of London, who have enough space, kind of, not a porch, not a garden, but a kind of concrete kind of, I don't know what you call it, um, sort of space between their fence and their door. So, you know, these nice big old townhouses and so they were they'd set up every week they would sit uh in this little bit and do a kind of string quartet chamber music type situation and these people are like qualified performing professional violinists so so basically their neighbors are getting like first class string quartet classical music in their street of an evening, when they're locked down, when they're trapped inside their houses and can't go out unless they want to buy shampoo, and suddenly on your doorstep you have the... I mean, I can only imagine how beautiful that would be, right? To be sitting in your front room of an evening when you can't do anything and you're slightly anxious, and then to have this very soothing, beautiful classical music emanating out in the spring air in the evening. I can't, that kind of thing... This is what's being negated in this thing, and I think this is what I find so troubling. Those kinds of things are not 
luxuries. Liberty is not a luxury. And I think that maybe we've become so scientized and so technologicified that we've we, we've forgotten that there are certain things about human life that are that's, that that we, we seem to think are luxuries, like freedom, like privacy, like meaning. We seem to think we seem to have contempt for these things and to think only in terms of safety and and um and preserving life in, 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 in a very crude, simplistic way, while forgetting that the, the things that make life worth living are, are not contingent if you want to have a good life. They're necessary for you to have a good life. And one of the necessary things is beautiful music in a communal way. So, not, so these people were getting everyth everything of... Probably more, it was probably more satisfying, I can imagine, to sit on a spring evening in Bayswater in a beautiful part of London and hear a beautiful piece of music coming from your neighbours. So you have this community feeling even as you're trapped. And so that just, I can only imagine how soothing and critical to the soul that would be. And then you have these fucking piddling, smiley cops that came along. And, and what's so annoying about this is that they shut these people down, but they did it in a nice way. I remember my mate from Thailand saying to me when there was this, when there was that coup attempt a couple of years ago, that the the militia were taking selfies and had this kind of very cheery PR thing going on. But underneath it, obviously, was the threat of violence. But they had a bit like with ISIS, they had this very slick, sophisticated PR operation, and it just reminded me of that that the the, the cheery, the sinister cheerfulness of the way in which the officers shut down this beautiful music that wasn't doing anything. Like, and it's not actually against the law. And this is the problem about scrutiny. We've had for weeks now laws that have been misinterpreted that are by nature open to misinterpretation and are constantly being misinterpreted. And and and, and People, the result of that is that critical things that make life worth living, the very reasons to get up in the morning, are now criminalised on a day. You don't know where you're coming or going. We don't know if one day to another. Uh, I don't know tomorrow if I walk out for my walk and podcast, which is a real critical moment of keeping me sane, where I go around familiar parts of London that I've always loved and listen to a part. I don't know if I'm, one day that's going to be, I'm just going to get, that's not good enough. That's, you know. I don't know if tomorrow I'm going to get told I can't go and walk around Westminster. I can't, I don't know. The, 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 and the unknowing of those things and the cheerful, sinister cheerfulness in the way that these things are, are policed is, is deeply troubling. So anyway, the reason that I chose to go and play when I really didn't want to was in defiance of these fuckers. You know, I, I think that this is the kind of philistinism which I, I, it's not, I mean, and, and when I talk to people, they go, yeah, yeah, that's just like, you know, over it. No, it's not an isolated incident. This is part and parcel of the shite we're living in. It's wrong. It's a violation of human nature. It's wrong. It's illegal. It's immoral. And it should end. It's not isolated incidents. It's every fucking day we've got some piddly fucking upstart. Philistine. There's a, there is philistinism underneath this, basically because the, the understanding of what's essential for life, like when they say non-essential, 
Well, I'm sorry, but a fucking string quartet is essential. Titian is essential. If you don't think those things are essential, not only are you an asshole, you, you're basically suggesting to me what you really think about human beings. That life is just a sort of grapple for survival. Well, fuck that. Is there any connection between shutting down... And, and the thing is, the, 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 the basis in which these guys were shut down was that there's a potential for social gathering. Even though there was no... People were sitting in their houses in a posh part of town. People behaved themselves. It was people sitting in their front rooms listening to this beautiful music. It makes me want to cry. I mean, really... People just sitting in their rooms listening to classical music. You fucking Philistine cunts. There's no connection between that and saving lives. And me questioning it doesn't mean I don't give a shit about people. It's a question of what's actually effective, what's actually proportionate. What kind of th no one actually knows because we can't like just following the mainstream news. Death toll. It's like six hundred thousand people die every year in fucking Britain. It's quite common for twenty thousand people to die in the winter months of flu. It's not uncommon for those averages to peak at about forty thousand every now and then. So it's not unprecedented to have 40,000 people die in a space of three months. Does that mean it's fine? No, it doesn't. But can we just at least have an adult proportional discussion here and not use it to ride carte blanche over the most critical, vital liberties that make life worth saving in the first place? There's a great interview. Well, first of all, I, I recommend Toby Young's Lockdown Skeptics. I cannot recommend this site enough. Every day, <laughs> this guy, there's something about Toby Young that's just like, I can tell why people hate him. Because he's so, because he's so not a fascist, that that's what makes him dangerous. That, he, that being a conservative and being a little bit mischievous he cannot so easily be dismissed as a bad guy, so they hate him more. It's a bit like what people hate Dave Rubin. Uh, there's certain kinds of people that get more hate from the left because, because they're not dangerous, but because they're rigorous and unimpeachable in their methods. And by God, Toby Young's lockdown skeptics. Every day that guy has this like thousand-odd word piece where he just like, combines all the news of the day on, 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 on the lockdown and coronavirus and all the scientific evidence against draconian measures. And it's so rigorous. That's the only word I can... It's defiantly rigorous. Uh, it's a, it's, to me, it's like a, it's a workshop in, in, in good journalism. But he has this manner about him, which is just this kind of... Oh, it's like he's, got, he's taken all the kind of pedantry of a bureaucrat 
and turned it against the bureaucratic thinking. And that's why he's, he's like a, he's like a, he, they create, the, the establishment created a monster. I love guys like that. I love guys who are like, Peter Hitchens is the same. The, I think it's, again, as I've spoken before about my experience at boarding school, but I think it comes from my experience at boarding school where the the kind of golden boy turns into the bad boy. I love I love guys like that. That's that's like my favorite kind of person, because they have all the rigors and uh, they know all the blind spots of the enemy, and they cannot be and they cannot be dismissed. That's the that's why people hate Toby Young. He cannot easily be dismissed as a nut. They, if you think that the only people that questioning the lockdown are just tinfoil hat COVID truthers, then you have to read lockdown skeptics there is at the very least you will be dispirited in your in in your attack on on skeptics like me because because it's so rigorous i can't i keep going back to that word it's 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 brilliantly rigorous and very useful but there's a great interview with i think the guy's called michael or david levitt basically a computer scientist from stanford stanford seemed to be producing a lot of great Lockdown skeptics. Um, let me just find it. Actually, I think it was uh, yesterday's. Michael Levitt, professor of structural biology at Stanford, and the winner of the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in two thousand and thirteen. So basically, this guy is 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 on unheard. And uh, Freddie Sayers at Unheard has been doing a lot of good work on this. Quite rigorous, very objective. He's not, he doesn't seem to have an axe to grind like I do. So he's, you know, he is kind of maintains an open mind about the lockdown. So, but this is a great interview where this like eminent Nobel Prize winning scientist is saying this has been overblown. It's a real threat, but it's a particular threat to a particular group of people that need to be protected. That's always been my point of view. If we can shut down our whole economy and bring in massive invasions of privacy and legislation surely we have the resources to have avoided doing that and to protect very vulnerable people surely that's not out the question that we would be able to do that without ruining their freedom too surely we can do that in the age of 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 apple macs and iphones and high-speed rail and global air travel surely we have the ability to avoid completely dismantling our civilization and protecting and a vulnerable group within that civilization at the same time surely we have surely we have i mean we've we're we're, we're a civilization full of bureaucrats and experts and how come they couldn't up think of something much more nuanced and granular than a, just a massive shutdown of, of, of public freedom This is exactly like Brexit. This is exactly like free speech. This is exactly like political correctness. It's got that air about it. Because the minute you question it to a certain group of people, you're not just wrong, you're a bad person. There's an undertone of suspicion. And that's where I get defensive. Because to me, it's so fundamental and so obvious and so self-evident that it's wrong. But that there's this moral aura about it, that if you question it, you want people to die or something, or you don't care about people. Every year, tens of thousands of people die in the same space of time, and nobody cares. So it's just a little bit trite, all of this. 
But anyway, I will link to Michael Levitt's interview and I will link to Lockdown Skeptics and I'll link to Lord Sumption's piece as well. Lord Sumption to me is... So I wrote this piece on my blog. I can't remember if I spoke... No, I wouldn't have spoken to last week. Um, so I wrote a piece last week about the presumption of liberty and how that's much more important, in fact, than the institutions of liberty. So it's all very well to have jury trials. It's all very well to have habeas corpus. It's all very well to have an independent judiciary. It's all very well to have uh, parliamentary sovereignty. But if you don't have liberty in the hearts and minds of men, then you don't have liberty at all. All of those institutions become an empty shell. And, in, 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 and George Orwell talks about this in England, Dear England, and I quote the passage where he says that the embodiment of what's called a kind of the good chap theory of, of the Constitution, that the Constitution isn't written, but it exists in the, in the assumptions and prejudices of educated people. And that sounds like to, to people like on the left crazy, and on the right as well. Like, but, there, but, there's, but there's a resilience in that when it works. And he said the embodiment is, is this is the, the crusty old judge in his scarlet robe who is a product of power, is a product of upper class inequalities, is a product of uh, prejudice and presumption. However, he is, unlike his counterparts in other parts of the world, not subject to the same levels of corruption because he emerges from a certain kind of class assumption, a set of class assumptions, he nevertheless has a sense of duty about preserving his office that someone who in a more egalitarian society would not. So I think in a way, although Lord Sumption is not a crusty old Tory, he's much more of a, a modern liberal. He, Lord Sumption is, is embodying that presumption of liberty more than anyone right now. And I remember when the terror legislation came in, I, can't, I maybe spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, when the terror legislation came in in 2006, I remember thinking exactly the same thing that, about certain people in, in the House of Lords. The House of Lords is an unaccountable, appointed second body with enormous amounts of power, and it's based on class. However, certain groups of people in it have a, have a prejudice towards tradition, the, 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 I think it's because their office is a product of tradition. So they would much rather avoid corrupt behaviours in order to preserve that tradition than to just take the buck, right? There's much more riding on it. There's much more incentive for them to preserve their office and not take the buck. So there's a resiliency in that that other countries perhaps don't have and that they don't see. It doesn't mean it's perfect, and Orwell wasn't saying it's perfect, but those very same people were the ones that stood up against Tony Blair's terror legislation and said, hang on a minute, this isn't really in accordance with what we're about, and what we're about is quite important. And that's what Lord Sumption is doing now. And it's telling that we've got, and that that's been eroded. It's telling. Anyway, I'll link to all those. Thanks for listening. I'm sorry for not being a, a, a voice of cheery distraction right now. I wish I could talk about poetry. I wish I could talk about beauty and love, but I can't.
I wake up every fucking day thinking about how cramped and awful and dystopian the situation we're living under is and what's going to happen afterwards. Even when this lockdown is lifted, that's almost more scary to me right now because the precedent has been set for a certain new reset relationship between citizen and state. And that's why I worry. What's the precedent we're setting here? What kind of new adjustment of that relationship between governed and governor? are we going to be living under in the future and how and and how hard it's going to be to argue against it because safety has become the go-to defense and it's so difficult it's so emotive and sensationalized and sentimental to question it it's like questioning the nhs it's become symbolic that if you if you if you question it you're some kind of awful person and this is that's what sucks the life out of you is is knowing that is is feeling like you're fighting for something that's so good but that has been rebranded as immoral. It's it's like Brexit multiplied by a hundred. Anyway, I'll stop blethering. I'm kind of boring myself now. Um, thanks for listening.